This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the first of two special editions of Talking TV. Looking back at some of the great guests we've invited on over the past two years. I'm Jake Cantor. On the show today, we'll revisit that remarkable interview with the then Top Gear exec producer Andy Wilman. Producer Martin Carr talks about bringing cop drama No Offence to Channel 4. Plus, Aisha Raphael discusses BBC3 drama Murdered by My Father. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Uh, we start with a look back at what exec producer Andy Wilman described as Top Gear's Anus Horribilis. And that was before the now infamous incident that got Jeremy Clarkson fired by the BBC. The BBC Two motoring show was censored by Ofcom for using an Asian racial slur, while host Jeremy Clarkson nearly lost his job after a video of him apparently muttering the N-word was leaked to the mirror. Then there was the trip to Argentina in September, where the number plates on Clarkson's Porsche angered locals who felt it referenced the Falklands War. Here's the Top Gear crew making a hasty exit from Argentina in the Patagonia special. Uh, and before we bring in Andy, uh, just a word of warning that there's some strong language and some potentially offensive terms in the interview. The truck blocking the right-hand lane. It's too slow. That's a deliberate <laughs> truck just put there. They're coming out. <gasps> the first couple of hits were from eggs. But then the rock started. Welcome, Andy. Yeah, welcome. Uh, baptism of fire there. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty ser- serious on the audio. How serious was it at the time? Being hit by the stones was not the scariest moment because you just think, I've got to get through that. And your brain has got no time to do anything but that. But the scariest element, I think, I think everyone there will probably agree with me, is the fact that it was so organised and the fact that you had no control at those points. You know, you had these, the motorbikes and the cars coming around and filming us and then buggering off to the next point. You think, shit, this is not just some piss up on a Friday night where they're going, let's lob some bricks at some English. It was like... You were, you were there during this, were you? I was. I yeah. was driving one of the vehicles that you see getting hit. Yeah, the scariest bit was that sense that this was all ready and waiting and planned. When you had control of your own destiny, that was not so bad. When we said, right, we're, gonna, we're not going to go into Rio Grande, the next big town. We're going to bugger off across country and across the river. You sort of start thinking, right, I've got some control. I can do something. I can do something. And rocks are rocks. You know, you just think, right, keep your head down because if it comes through, you're worried about the glass hitting your eyes while you're driving and stuff like that. The sense that you were being hounded and hunted was the scariest bit, we thought. You know, you're at the bottom of South America and we were thinking, well, when's the first gun going to come? You know, it wasn't like we were dealing with the British Legion or something like that or, you know, some middle-aged blokes bit cross with you. It was, it was really bloody heavy on that level. Yeah, it's difficult because in the UK, obviously, there's a massive disconnect here between Aye. what was being reported and you know what was actually happening out there. Mm. I mean, the feeling was, to a certain extent, that you brought this upon yourself. Well, I'm sure people do think that. Do, do, do you? What would you say to that argument? No, well, we didn't because the number plate, and I'm actually 
I know, I mean, you've, you've blogged about this in some detail. Yeah, the number plates were a coincidence. As Jeremy has said, he's given up trying to convince people because people <laughs> go, that's what Top Gear do. Personally, I am bored shitless now of... Of talking about it. <laughs> well, no, no, no. What I, what is, I'd say what I'm bored of is everyone's a pub critic. So everyone's response is, oh, come on, you must have done. Oh, come on. So I'm sort of saying, all right, now shut up now. Get your evidence together. I've put my argument out there. Stop sitting around going, ah, come on. Get get your stuff together, really, because prove it. Prove it the other way. Do, do you see why people feel that way? Because, I mean, Top Gear yes. is, is quite a knowing show, isn't it? You have knowing humour. There yes. are in-jokes. Completely see it. I completely see that people would go, that's the sort of thing they would have done. Get that. The problem is we didn't. What I'm not going to do is jeopardise a whole show and wind up a load of veterans down there. You know, our special's our biggest thing. I'm not going to wind them up for... A joke about on a number plate about a war that happened thirty years ago. It's just that's bollocks that I would do that. Yes, it's a sort of childish thing we might do. We didn't, you know. Do you think the Top Gear gets enough support from the BBC itself when you're under fire? Does the BBC give us enough support when we're under fire? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes no, because they... The problem with Top Gear is, I think for something like the BBC, is it's got this remit that's like... What the BBC like about Top Gear is, is when it's naughty, but it's all under control naughty, that's all good. Mm. The trouble is, if your show is a bit wayward and naughty, there's an attitude within it. Sometimes it's going to, as we say, we walk a tightrope most of the time. Sometimes we're going to fall off it. And if you do, I think that's when the BBC, I, I, I'm not a fan of their reaction when you walk off because they're sort of like, can you be naughty between the hours of? Can you be naughty under these conditions? So sometimes I feel they don't trust us uh, at heart. Mm. And actually, apart from the very odd occasion, well, we can be trusted. Top Gear deserves trust. Top Gear deserves trust. Well, if you looked at our track record... And what we have to do. We've been going for 22 series. We're supposed to walk this tightrope. I think we've had, I don't know how many upheld complaints and Ofcom things, but it's it's less than 20 in all that time. Now, you can't do what we do and get those few upheld complaints without, A, actually having a good respectful working relationship with editorial policy who are at the BBC quite brilliant I think there's two people in particular who are totally brilliant David and Sue you can't achieve that kind of record if the show itself isn't quite smart about what it's doing otherwise it would be literally a car crash day after day after day because we wouldn't be thinking about what we're doing so I'd argue, yeah, we can be trusted. I really would, because our track record shows that. When we go off the tightrope, there'll be a reason. Sometimes I would screw up. Did you go I, off the tightrope too much last year? Well, you pick, you throw the examples at me and we'll talk them through. <laughs> okay, well, look, I mean, the Jeremy Clarkson was outside of your control. The, the, Which the, one? The, the, the mirror story. But the, the slope example... Yeah, which I was, got that wrong. Which was criticised by I got that wrong. I got I got that wrong because 
like I said at the time, I thought it was a sort of commando mag John Wayne film type sort of bit of movie slang. I didn't realise that it would be um, offensive in a bigger way. So I wouldn't have done that if I'd have known that. But I think people think we can just sit there and soak up the aggro that comes with it and go, oh, 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 we're in trouble again. But that takes, you know, the amount of grief that you get back on that. Actually, I've got a lot of work to do. So in proportion, I'm going to soak that up. So that was my screw up because I didn't suss the word out. I didn't check it enough and therefore didn't refer it. And if I'd have done that, then we would have got somewhere and it wouldn't have happened. So I admittedly, you know, I took that, I got a warning for it, took that on the chin, I got sent on a course that was really interesting about editorial something or other. So I've done my bit there. Will that change the way you approach the show in the future if we're, if we're going to start to look ahead at, at what the what the future brings to Top Gear now? No, it won't because it was what I would do is, like I say, you, you can never stop improving, you can never stop checking. Now, with the slope thing, I was very upset that I didn't, I kind of messed editorial policy around. I didn't refer it to them. I, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't, because I, I knew it was a sort of joke, but I didn't think it was a bad word. If I've got criticism of the BBC, sometimes they worry about the fact that you would get complaints and that what the Daily Mail's going to say. Nobody really cares what the Daily Mail says. I We certainly don't, or the Mirror. But editorial policy understand that you're going to get complaints, it's just whether you can defend them or not. That's what that's what the job's about. And they're very good at that. But if you can't you can't defend the indefensible though. Is is that Which what you're would saying? Be what? Uh, I mean you're saying you made a mistake on the slope thing. Yes. So yes. that was tough to defend. Well no, it wasn't defensible because I had to put my hand up and go, I cocked up there. Yeah. You know, I knew there was a joke. I thought the word was of a lower level than it appeared to be. The interesting thing about Top Gear is no matter what sort of storm you find yourself in, the, the show's popularity is completely endures. I mean, they, the Patagonia special got more than 7.3 million viewers, uh, beating your Burma special. Yes, I'm uh, waiting uh, to see a brick come through the window. <laughs> Does public outcry just... Not, do, you, do you feel that you're insulated from that when it comes to your fans? Not, not your in a... No, heavens no. Not in an arrogant way, because what is... We're much more worried about somebody going, I was bored watching that, than somebody going, I was outraged watching that. We're, we're aware that we're kind of a, a bit in uncharted waters. There are shows that have been going longer than us and they're still epic, like uh, Have I Got News or what have you. But with Series 22, with a, with a show that constantly does new things in each series, so we're not a very fixed format. Now, that I think that's the curse and the blessing. We're still going because will do different things or go to different places. Hey, they'll still involve cars. They'll still involve fast driving. They'll still involve grown men falling over in some way or another. But there is more freshness to the material than some other format shows. So that keeps us going. And I think also those three guys are still happy to get out of bed go and talk bollocks in their cars and do their things. You know, they're still they're still very happy. You watch them in Patagonia just sitting around talking and blah, 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 sitting there eating beaver on their campsite. They're, who wouldn't love that? Who wouldn't love getting off that ferry and trying to get across that beach? You know, it's a great thing to do. So they're still fired up and that still comes across. Is the appetite there 
Yeah. From or from the whole team. How long do you see the, the show continuing for? Well, is the appetite there from the whole team? We're knackered after last year because last year was a horrible year, I think. It was a, what did the Queen say? Anas Horribilis. I think it was. Um, so, but now we're going to go Top on Top Gear's Anas Horribilis. Yeah. But next, <laughs> ne- now we're going to go on air. So we just want to crack on. Um, and then we'll see if we've still got an audience because obviously you don't know. You know, I don't know because people watch Patagonia if we've still got an audience because people wanted to watch some real reality TV for the last 15 <laughs> minutes. So, no, the appetite's still there. We're, we're tired. We're all a bit knackered. Although we've been off air, we've been working hard getting these shows together. And now there's a, you know, the usual rush to get it all to air. But I'd give this series 8 out of 10 that's coming. First show's good, second show's good. What, what, tell us about some good. of the things you've got coming up. Well, first show, we had um, a few years ago, we did this race across London, public transport, river, da 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 da. Now, since then, we thought we've also built our, our hover van, which was the van and hovercraft that we tried out. Now, they have a variation of that in St. Petersburg. So we thought we'll do a sequel to that race, but this time with the hover van type device. With one so, that, that properly, <laughs> properly working. Yeah, no, no, real hover people van. built. No, it's not a sort of crap <laughs> that we've built. It's actually proper people have built this. This is like, it's got larder engines. It's top draw. So Jeremy's on that. Stig's on Russian public transport. And James is in a Renault Twizy, which is that tiny, tiny city car. And Rich is on his bicycle. So it's a sequel in that the hover van is in, but it's a fucking good film, actually. I've been watching it. Yeah, we just got it finished this week. Everyone's given it the, their all, you know, and uh, St. Petersburg looks marvellous. You're off to Australia as well, aren't We've you? We've been, we're back, we're done. I'm cutting that now. I was cutting that last night. What we did there was the Northern Territories. We've never been. And the Northern Territories is the most hirsute, manly bit of Australia. So... We wanted to do a test of some of these luxury coupes, like Bentley Grand Continental, you know. So this is new cars instead of some of the the exactly. beat-up vehicles that you yeah, used so previously. Yeah, so it's not, yeah, it's 500 quid, buy a shitter, mm. and then <laughs> drive it in a river. That's the point, actually. We go, you know, we do that with these cars that are cost a grand and constantly amaze ourselves at what they can do. But there's an argument that those cars are simple and therefore will survive. So we thought, well, let's take three top end rammed with electronics and traction controls and engine management systems and la 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 out there and put them through the kind of hell that we would do so we got a road trip through the northern territories and they're like racing through those massive open cast mines pit things camping in the outback cattle herding who knew you could cattle herd with a bentley um continental and a BMW Grand Coupe and a Nissan GTR, you know that that you normally need four by fours and helicopters to cattle herd. So they're on this ranch, which is three million acres, which is the size of lots of counties put together and do geography. And um, that's a cracker, that one as well, because it, it looks so incongruous. There's something wrong about a Bentley trying to herd cattle <laughs> when it should be at Old Trafford. We did Born Legacy type thing in Canada. We dropped Hammond out in the wild in Canada. And he's got one of those watches that you pull the thing and you got 24... It sends out a distress signal for 24 hours. So Jeremy and James have got to find the, the right cars and rescue him before his pin thing goes and he's lost in 24 hours. 
That sort of Bear Grylls style, or, or, or not quite? Bear Grylls, my ass. This is Born Legacy. <laughs> Born like Legacy. Jeremy Ren- yeah, Jeremy Renner, this is, this is, yeah. We've got to wrap it up, unfortunately, but I just want to ask you. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've kept you talking, but just just one one more question. I mean, sure. Yeah, you, you say you've still got the appetite. Mm. We spoke last last year when you were last on the show that yes. um, you, know, you were beginning to have conversations with the BBC about a new deal. Is that is that going to happen? Are you going to sign a new deal this year? We're still having those conversations. I think when we met last year, had it been the horrible year or not? Had it begun yet the horrible year? Or was it before? It was, that? I can't it was just before it all kicked off, I think. It was yeah. right, it was February. No, we're still talking to them. We're still talking to them. And like I say, our appetite's still there. Yeah, I I, I would ho- hope and think we're continuing. Are both parties willing? Are the BBC making the right noises mm-hmm. about keeping you on board? Yeah, they're willing. Um, because the show is working. It's still a good thing to have in the mix. The Reithian principle of speaking to everybody, we're still a it, valuable part of that equation is is the point. So um, I would hope so. So you might not always have the full support of the BBC, but they fully support Tom yeah, but I love as, the as BBC. the future. We love the BBC. The notion and principle of the BBC is actually a brilliant place to be in the Reithian way, you know, and the fact that we have no commercial pressures, etc. So it's a wonderful place to make it. Um, I could do with a bit less telling off, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but the BBC, nothing wrong with that. That was Andy Wilman discussing Top Gear with me back in 2015. Next up in this highlights of the last year of Talking TV and ahead of its return to Channel 4, let's look back on the first series of No Offence, a drama about a crumbling cop shop on the wrong side of Manchester. Abbott has made no secret of the fact that No Offence will attempt to emulate a shameless landscape and is his bid to blend the ingredients of cops and comedy in a way that no other writer has achieved. Paul's right-hand man at Abbott Vision, Martin Carr, will join us in a moment to discuss the eight-part series. But first, a clip from the first episode. Here, down on a luck copper, Dina Kowalska gets a ride from a colleague. So a little Chinese lady, yeah, accident on the M56, yeah. Dog's unsecured on the back seat, but she, yeah, she's opened a bag of Maltesers. A little Jack Russell, he jumps up front for some of that, and boom! Little Chinese lady, she goes smack into the back of another vehicle. Ambulance, as it happens. So, our 55-year-old Miss Saigon... That's Vietnam. ...ends up with the entire head, the entire head of the dog, slammed right down her little face. You taking me to see that? Well, I knew it would cheer us both up. Welcome, Martin. Thanks for joining us. No trouble. I think Paul described it as sort of trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole, no offence. Yes. That's something I read. Can you tell us how it all came about and why why the ambition was there to do this? Yeah, it's with Paul ideas so he gets he's always talking about it, he gets loads of ideas in the shower and then jots them all down. And <laughs> the shower's his thinking ground. And well, and also he has a walking, he's got a walking, he kind of pads around walking. You 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 can spot good Paul Abbott walking or bad Paul Abbott walking when you when you know him, you can see if something's gonna come out. And he pads round and round and round. And no offence was an idea. The, actually, I found a treatment for it from 2006, back in the day. So it started, it was formulated quite early. And then it's just sat on it. It hasn't done anything with it for a bit. It's been developing shows in the US and over here. And then it just kind of lit with him again. And primarily about the characters, it was originated. The characters come first. So Deering, you know, who's Joanna Scanlon now, um, she was first, she was written very early. And the premise, when he was looking at the 
you know, the Down syndrome serial killer strand. That was, I think the reason he picked that, he said, was because it would be the hardest thing he could write. He said, because it sounds like a funny headline, he wants to wipe the smile off everyone's faces. He said, just humanise it. And he said, that's the hardest thing to write, so I'll do that. So it started out with that, and Dinah was in it early as well, actually. And then the other characters kind of formulated as he started to plot the scenes down. So it's been been a while. And the the intention was always to blend comedy and and uh, high drama. I mean, it does crackle along. It is very gripping. It, yeah, it started out more broad. It's even actually the start of the production. It started out more broad. It was it's very very hard to find the tone because the the rule was that if you get robbed, if you get attacked, these are the people you want on the beat. So Paul, what Paul hates most is people complaining about their jobs. He says, I don't, you know, you hear people complaining about their jobs all their work. What you don't want to do is come home and watch people complaining about stuff. He said, these are people who love what they do. They are great at what they do. They are overworked in extremis. And we, <clears throat> when we were doing early briefings, it was that the, you go in and the cops have a pile of paper mounted up on the desk. And Deering would say, where's that case that came in this morning? And you lift up like 7,000 sheets of paper and pull out a thing because just it never stops coming. So the rule was... He wanted to take the bill, and he said there's a big hole gone where the bill was, that big procedural police with beat cops and the whole police landscape. He wanted to take that audience and give them something new. He said, I want to refresh it and give them something new. And the funny, it did start out much more funny, but in honouring the good cops and people who care, the humour ended up being pared back. So it ends up more grounded actually there's sort of two degrees left of reality but the, the truth is where we ended up rather than the humor i mean the humor is there but we're not laughing at it we are laughing on with them i think so when you guys at abbott vision walk in at channel four yeah mm-hmm. and you and you see peers and, and the team there you'd imagine from the outside that getting a commission is reasonably straightforward did or was it not it that straightforward in this case it wasn't actually that bad i mean the, the abbott brand i think is it has its own power. I think if you went in with someone else and pitched this, especially as it was broader when we started and it was discussing the tone, that had been actually all the way down the line really collaborative. When we were finding it again, they helped out on the extended development. They've been very across the show, but not prescriptively so, which is good. You tend to get, we think there's a problem here. Normally you have a look at it and normally they point out actually there is because you get so close to it. So the commission wasn't... That bad. We had to do another pitch to Jay at the beginning, where Paul did a crazy vasectomy reversal story at the beginning. But um, <laughs> I think it was that faith in it. So it went straight to. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't do a pilot first. It was let's okay, let's crack on and get the series created. So it wasn't uh, wasn't that difficult. And talk us through the production. We shot in Manchester. Paul writes with the kind of rhythm of Manchester, and he always saw it in Manchester. So that that was where it was going to be. We have a writer's studio as well. So. We use the US model. We have sort of varieties of it around the world. So we have the biggest ones in Manchester, which is a big residential house where all the writers stay, and we have whiteboards all around the walls. And we create shows. It's a hyper-collaborative process. There's a lot going on in each episode. You have the serial killer story, which takes three or four very severe twists. I think even if you guess who it is, you would never guess the way we'd end it. I think the show is very unpredictable. And we have the rule of, we have A stories of the week, which are the more extreme end of crime. And we have to be very careful picking those because what you want to do is we chose stories that are driven by our characters. Not Otherwise you end up with your stories of the week becoming, you know, you are a really powerful guest story and all your characters, the texture around it. What we wanted is stories that would drive, that would ask moral questions to our team. 
uh, about. What so you have it. a number of ongoing stories, uh, but but you try Every to week. have uh, a story a story of the week. Effectively, we have very big stories of the week. How tough is that to blend those two things? Very very hard. And also you've got the character stories of the week. Paul wants to have a lot, so we have some of the C and D stories as well. So we have a little story like in that one. You have Mitchell Patterson, you know the boy who comes in with Gran, which is two scenes. We have those sort of bits peppered through. We have the big stories of the week. Paul's rule is you have to have a five-course meal. So you get to the end of those apps and you want the audience to feel satisfied. You don't want them hanging on for the serial story. The serial story will drive you on to the next one. But if you just dropped into it, you've got a very satisfying meal. And the balance of it was probably the hardest to get. And the, the yin-yang between the two you know, two stories, it was it's very, very hard. And that's why you need the collaboration. I think to hold it in your head on your own is very very hard so and that's why we have the big team the team writing model so a lot of people we have offices in London which have the same thing but London's not residential it's just a big huge boardroom Manchester's good because a lot of the ideas come you have a very stressful day beating out and it's hard work it's tiring you know you're trying to beat out you've got massive board table with paper all over it with each ep outline you come up with the beats on post-its of course writers negotiate for the beats but you're putting the beats around where you think they need to go just just for our listeners what's a beat the sort of uh like for example elizabeth or Sarah could does when's another girl die another girl gets abducted when what ep does that go in what and stories of the week we have a bank of stories of the week of potential stories we've come up with between us which sometimes are inspired by real things Real life, we don't, we don't try to get lim- not get limited by that. So you go, you think, what would it be fun to do? And then assemble the stories. So we have a pool of stories of the week. And some are going to fit better with, like, as the serial killer story beats, builds, that starts to dominate the episodes more. So the stories of the week have to step down. The stories of the week in three, four, five, and six are very, very up in the episodes. Uh, seven and eight, when the stories start to take a really severe set of twists and the cops will turn on themselves. It, that's why you hate the serial killer because of what it, the damage it does to our team. Um, the stories then have stepped down. We changed the story of the week in eight about two weeks before we shot it. Luckily, we had another one we dropped out that Paul had written. We moved that in and had to rescaffold it because the story of the week was too big. Um, Quite the architecture bringing all this together. It sounds like yeah, uh, it's very it's very yeah. architectural. It's and um, yeah, and said hyper collaborative. So there's no you don't get a lot of egos in it. And Paul's very amenable to note. He'll take you note from anybody. He said the rule is in the right studio is that everybody has to be feel comfortable to suggest the maddest shit on earth. And even though you may not do it, what you bring back from it, you'll bring something back. The discussion you'll have of why, why that does or doesn't work will bring back, uh, you'll bring back some something you can apply to the rest of the series. Uh, do you think it can have the longevity of Shameless? I mean, you mentioned you're developing series two. Mm. Is that the one, ambition? Yes. The uh, Series one is sort of blitzkrieg introduction. Season two is stepping back on the serial stories less dominant in the... It was kind of, this is a welcome to our character. You know, we have an extraordinary beginning. Um, and it, it throws you headlong into the, the uh, team. But the aim is to go to have really more stories of the week. It, the very, very busy episodes is the rule. But it's it was designed to be... We've always seen it running a long time. And there's a lot of... When we were planning it out, there's, we were thinking, OK, we'll have that in the next season and that in the one after. I mean, it's... it's Plans long term saving treats. <laughs> we just things we couldn't physically fit in. You're very yeah. you, you're kind of handicapped a bit by the by the serial killer story because you've got to honour it. And we try to be unique by having the stories of the week, but you're you're tied in on a quite rigid structure. Were there any other inspirations? Any other references that we might recognise? Prime suspect was one. Um, the bill was a strong one. Mm. 
you know, people saying, well, we had a police advisor who's very good, and he was saying, oh, we, you don't get the detectives generally muddled up with the beat cops now. We didn't want to make a detective show. And we went, well, there's got to be times you do. And he said, well, only in, a, in an integrated policing unit would you have that. So we have a sign on the wall saying integrated policing unit. You know, we just thought we'll, we'll fit round to make it fit how we wanted it to. So the bill's in there. Um, cops is sort of was an inspiration. Nurse Jackie, we watched watched through with a, with a kind of tonal view at the beginning. I think it has its own. I do think it's unique. In, I can't think of anything exactly like it. Um, but we watched a lot of things on the... We watched a lot of stuff going in to see what, what we thought worked and what, yeah. we, what we wanted to do. And just quickly, I mean, just obviously drama in the UK feels like it's in a very healthy place. Mm-hmm. What, what What's your view? I think people are genuinely starting to allow some some risk there's and, and you know us shows are extraordinary now the talent luckily is can well feature films have got so difficult i think largely due to the demise of the back end you know dvd gone on its knees and the, the online providers aren't paying enough for content they pay well for tv they do not pay well for film and i think it's it's polarizing much more actually i think you're losing you, i think you're losing to an extent the individual voice on cinema and if you are making them they made passion and they made because they have other remits but I think commercially it's, it's non impossible. And I think to get a voice, I think appetite's changed. You know, an hour and a half feature was sort of a mandatory fit, pick, figure 100 years ago. I think the way we watch stuff is is different now. I had met with YouTube a while ago. We were talking about creating shows for that. And uh, and they said, oh, we're very proud to have Justin Bieber doing long form for us now. And I said, can you define long form? And they were anything over two minutes. And also the market with, with bigger players stepping in and the appetite for TV is stronger and because of what's been happening in America and here I think that the people are expecting more and and broadcasters are stepping up and giving more so I think it's a, a really I do I think it's the golden era Moving on, two years ago, BBC Three's Murdered by My Boyfriend told the chilling story of a domestic violence case. The factual drama was a big hit, raising awareness for an important issue and garnering its star, Georgina Campbell, a BAFTA. BBC Three has now sought inspiration from other real-life events for a second drama. Murdered by My Father will tackle the issue of honour killings, bringing viewers the story of a 17-year-old British-Asian girl whose life is ended by her dad. Executive producer Aisha Raphael will be with us in a moment to discuss the show. But first, a clip. Here, Salma is having breakfast with her brother when her father reads a letter from school. Where were you last Friday? School. Wednesday. Why are you asking? We are concerned that Salma's lack of attendance is a product of distraction elsewhere in her life. Have you been? But I know. That it's a boy. <gasps> you don't say things like that. Okay. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Yes. Thank so you're you all for inviting cut, me. cut and delivered. Yes, and it's uh, going to be available online on Tuesday. It's Next really nice. week. Yes. Yes. And um, if you don't mind me saying, it's, it's pretty harrowing stuff. It's not an easy watch. It's one of those subjects which I grew up myself in a uh, British Pakistani uh, household. It's it's one of those subjects that's been around and with me um, for years, and so 
harrowing as it is and difficult as it is to translate into something that's watchable for telly, we really, really felt it was important to tell that story. And although it's harrowing, I think there's lots of things for people that are relatable within it. It's a love story. It's about a young girl, teenager, wanting to have the freedoms that most teenagers want to have meeting someone, falling in love with them and facing difficulties, progressing that relationship because actually her father has already uh, made a commitment to another boy and then the sort of terrible consequences of desire for for a girl in that situation and and obviously it leads to her death. So I take on board that it's harrowing but actually I think uh, there's there's also a love story in that. There are are (laughs) genuine moments of levity in it, I I should add. And, you know, it's... um, Enjoyable is not the right word, but, you know, it certainly grips you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've been, uh, in, in some of the promotional material around it, you've been quite careful to say that it's based on lots of different accounts. Yeah. Um, talk us through that process, because Murder by My Boyfriend was slightly different, wasn't it? Yes, because what we did, and, and all factual drama sort of starts with true people uh, who've experienced stuff, whether that's fre- uh, friends of girls that ended up murdered by family members or boyfriends that we got in touch with um, and the, the the thing that came through with all with all of them was the importance of protecting their identities and even by sort of jigsaw identification somehow people finding out who who it was that they were talking about so when we um, got Vinay Patel our writer on board what we said to him was read around the subject as much as you can and there have been some very high profile cases that have been in the tabloids and broadsheets and on the news that everyone's aware of and take uh, we also talk to psychologists to the police to um, charities such as Karma Nirvana and ICRO a Kurdish and Iranian women's organization to get um, the, the, for, for it to be as grounded in truth as it could possibly be but at the same time we didn't want any repercussions of us telling one particular story to then have further negative impact um, because it would defeat the point of doing doing our film so a real journalistic exercise then really yeah and how so how did you piece together those stories and do it carefully and as, as to not identify one particular case uh i think for people aware of some of the more famous stories they'll probably see echoes in several of of the stories that they might think of which we thought would be a good thing and um, it's not about one particular community which we're quite keen to say because actually it happens in loads of different communities it's not one particular uh, family structure either so we wanted to, to we wanted the writer to have freedom and to be inspired by truth and to be grounded in truth but not for anyone to be able to say that was my daughter or that was my boyfriend or that was my my sister. Yeah. And Vinay's a pretty new writer, isn't he? He is, yeah. It's really exciting. Uh, one of the things that BBC Three has traditionally been incredibly good at is nurturing new talent. And when we embarked on this, obviously I come from a Pakistani uh, Muslim background. I was really keen to try and get a voice that would be from a community that had also, like myself, grown up with it and was aware of all of the difficulties of representation because it's so open to people saying, uh, and I have myself felt when I've watched other versions of this this type of subject before oh my god that's quite caricatured or uh, oh the um father there is just a monster and so when i read vinay's 
uh, theatre script he'd done, True Brit. So I was just blown away. It was a very distinct and original voice and he'd done one uh, thing with BBC Drama, which was an iPlayer short. And so he hadn't done a long film before. I met him and I just liked the sensibility. He shared the same concerns I had about the representation and we both wanted to do a... Um, a story where the father, what we wanted to do was attempt to get as much as we could into the head of the father as possible. It's not to be on his side, but to understand how a father can do that to their daughter. You need not to represent them as a monster, but to try and understand all of the pressures that are coming and bearing upon him to do something as drastic um, as he does. And I I feel really pleased that that's one of the things that I feel we've achieved in the casting of um, Adil Akhtar, who I think is an amazing talent. Um, He's incredible in this. He's he's really good. Um, Just looking at Adil, you can't think the word monster. And I think that really helps in the portrayal. But also he he really gets us into... um, where the father's at, the father really loves his daughter, the daughter really loves her dad. And that was really important for us to convey that actually this sort of extreme horror and violence can happen in the most loving of setups. Yeah. And the thing I find fascinating is the, the spoilers in the headline, <laughs> in, in the title of the show. I'll tell how, you. How do you manage that? Uh, the, the battles with creative people, directors and writers, when you're faced with a, a title like Murder by My Father. So um, I think originally that came from, we were, we were in a conversation with Damien a lot about what, what we could do in terms of actual drama that might capitalise on the fact that Murder by My Boyfriend was an amazing film and brought something that's very prevalent in society to a young audience that really engaged with it and watched it. And we wanted, and he said, well actually you know there was a tussle there about the title originally as well and um, even though people might not want us to have that title because it gives too much away obviously it gives everything away um, it brings a certain it's another storytelling technique that's really powerful all the way as you watch it you're sort of filled with dread and anticipation about what's going to happen next so it sort of works it's almost overwhelming that dread at times even though you know what's going to happen which is quite a strange sensation as a viewer I think yeah so how did you come to be involved in something that I guess is perceived in, in all intents and purposes to be a sequel? Damien was, uh, Damien Kavanagh, the controller of BBC Three, uh, knew that I had a drama background. We're always pitching factual drama ideas to him. And um, he was looking for another way to do something that was a big social issue that young people would be interested in. Honour killing is something that affects young women in the largest numbers of people impacted are young women under 25. And uh, much as with domestic violence, which although happens in um, all age groups, it's actually very particularly something that happens a lot with with young people. We wanted to find a way to tell a story that had universal aspects and so could be about something that everybody related to. Everyone comes in a family, everyone has a father, everyone has been a teenager, everyone falls in love. So to find common strands that people could relate to but tell um, a really powerful story that would also have impact beyond our programme, which is what Murder by My Boyfriend did as well. And just more generally in your day-to-day work, are you trying to find stories that can be translated into drama more these days? 
Yes. Well, if you look at most stuff um, on the telly, it's hard to say what doesn't come out of a sort of fact-based, you know, fact-based research, really, whether it's, you know, the uh, lost honour of Christopher Jeffries, whether it's, uh, you know, murder by my boyfriend, a lot of the stuff that um, has impact, uh, cyberbully that was on Channel 4, a lot of the impacting stuff actually comes from a real world place. Um, some of those stories are, as murder by my boyfriend was, an individual narrative. Um, others are inspired by or have collated, as we have, different stories and then use them to influence the the story the t- the story that we tell i think that people are just really wanting authenticity and something that's real um, as much as we like the fantastical I think that there actually is on telly a definite trend for that so yes we make it our business to constantly be pitching fact-based drama. How do you weigh that up though because <laughs> sometimes I'd imagine that you stumble across subjects or individuals that you think actually that'd be a great documentary. <laughs> Often. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how do you how do you make that decision as to whether to pursue something that could become a scripted project ultimately? I think I think the ultimate justification for something being factual drama is that you could not have told it in any other way. If you look at hybrids like the recent murder games that Cat English directed on BBC Three, it's a perfect example of where you can marry the two forms. And uh, that was amazing access to the family um, of Breck. And also there was an element that you absolutely couldn't, but that was very dramatic that you'd want to be involved with, which was the actual dialogue between the two boys, um, which she had to dramatise. So there's those sorts of hybrids. But the rule of thumb for us, and I'm sure for anybody in commissioning when we take an idea to them is, could you tell that better in truth and observationally or with the real people or with other examples of these people you've come across or is there no other way to tell it and I think um, with this one there was no other way to tell this story other than to dramatise because I don't think we'd ever get uh, unfolding actuality Why you, you couldn't ever be part of it you could only ever be part of the aftermath which is um, powerful but not as powerful Yeah and you tell it in about an hour and 15 minutes? It's which 75 is, minutes. It's long. unusual for television. <laughs> is that is that because you're freed from the constraints of the, of the schedule? Yes, it didn't start out. Uh, uh, I do promise everybody it didn't start out that we wanted a longer film. But um, <laughs> we, uh, Vinay wrote a 60-minute script. We were scheduled to be making a 60-minute script. And then somehow in the, the way that Bruce Goodison, who directed it, somehow in the way that the actors embodied the parts, I, somehow the mood and length and pace and tone of the scenes just felt right for us to be making it longer. And I I got uh, Damien on the phone and said, I'm really sorry, Damien, it's just not going to be 60 minutes. And he said, you know what, this is the one time I can say it doesn't matter. And uh, it's quite liberating. It's fantastic, yeah, it, because also a lot of the time, sometimes, uh, you're stretching material to be the length that needs to fit 60. And actually, a lot of documentaries, for instance, work better at 40 or 45 minutes or 50. And, uh, you know, a Channel 4 hour is only 47 minutes at the BBC. Uh, an hour is actually 59 minutes of content. So it is, it's liberating in that you, you don't need it to be, as long as it's sort of beyond 20, it counts as long form. It doesn't really matter. Uh, how will it work on the, the repeat? Are you 
you getting BBC One or BBC Two? It's going to go out at 10.45 on BBC One a week after the BBC Three transmission. I think BBC One is the right home for it. In fact, the 75 minutes makes it harder to put out on BBC Two at nine uh, because of the way that they've, they, they schedule. But actually, I think in terms of audience and uh, subject matter, um, a lot of the stuff that we've done on BBC Three has then translated to BBC One really well, like Life and Death Row. Um, and I think this subject feels it, it, it will chime with a larger audience. And just uh, just quickly, uh, some some thoughts on this might might be interesting in terms of you know obviously the the conversation in the industry being dominated by boosting diversity at the moment. Do you think dramas like this should be more commonplace? Yes, although not always dramas like this. Uh, we're really proud to have brought this subject to an audience, but actually I'd love to see drama where it wasn't about an issue. I'd love to see more drama. I loved seeing, for instance, in Dr. Foster, it was great that there was, um, you know, the the doctor in the surgery that was the friend of the lead character, just happened to be Asian. I, uh, I also really looking forward to seeing Undercover, where the leads are black. Drama is a really brilliant way to show the nation uh, a mirror, hold a mirror up to them that reflects them. And in some ways, actually, it's slightly easier than doing it through factual. Um, sometimes with factual, you're very honed in on the place that you end up. And that story doesn't necessarily mean you can bring diverse elements in. Whereas most people lives lives, uh, uh, most British people lives, live lives in this country where they are surrounded on a daily basis by a, a wide variety of human beings of all races, colours, creeds and, and so on. So uh, drama is a better way to reflect it. Yeah, and finally, you got some other ideas up your sleeve? Are we going <laughs> to be expecting another follow-up? <laughs> uh, not necessarily a direct follow-up, but yes, we, we've got a few ideas that we're talking to Damien about in factual drama, but also for BBC Two. Um, we're working with Cat English at the moment, who did Murder Games, so we're hoping to... Um, we've just got, actually, um, access uh, to somebody who's willing to, t- to allow it to be a story about their actual life, so it might be quite exciting to do something where you can identify the person whose story uh, we're telling. And I'm doing something with um, Fergus O'Brien, who was an exec working with me in docs and is now returning to the thing he most loves, which is directing, which is um, 50 years uh, next year will be the um, anniversary of the 1967 Sexual Offences Act. And we're going to do um, tell the story of the decriminalisation of... Um, homosexuality and the liberation and that sort of hope hope of liberation at that point through a mixture of drama and documentary uh, that's it from this special edition of talking tv thanks to my guests andy wilman martin carr and aisha Raphael. Uh, we have another special for you before normal service is restored make sure you stay subscribed to hear new episodes as and when they appear using your podcast app of choice. Or you can listen on broadcastnow.co.uk. I'm Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.